Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Heather Dune McAdam is the author of 999, The Extraordinary Young Women of the First Official Jewish Transport to Auschwitz, which has already been translated into Spanish, Italian, French, Dutch, and 10 other languages. It's on the bestseller list in Spain, where Heather Dune was just on a a publicity tour, and she's producing a documentary film by the same title, in hopes of raising the awareness about the first girls in Auschwitz. She calls 999 a historic Me Too story whose time has come. And you can find out more about the documentary and book by visiting 999themovie.com. Also on Facebook, you can find them, 999, the first women in Auschwitz. And on Twitter, at Heather Dune. You can find her there too. And Carol, Heather won the Roy Dean Film Grant for the fall of 2019, right? Yes, she did. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I know, uh, Heather, that traveling is hard on you, but we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us about your film. So how are uh, you thank today? You. I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to be here, and uh, it's just, uh, I'm just I'm just sticking a little note out on Twitter. <laughs> oh, what fun. Good. Well, your background as a writer is so impressive, and, and it looks like your move to documentary filmmaker just would be a natural expansion for you. So we want to cover many things today on making a documentary, writing a book, and marketing a book at the same time that you're producing and making a documentary, because a lot of filmmakers think about writing books, and I know that they'll love to hear how you made the time to write your book and fund your film at the same time. So let's start (laughs) with your first book, okay? Um, Okay. That was that was a great book, Rena's Promise, <clears throat> a story of sisters in Auschwitz about two girls on the first transport. Uh, tell us why you got involved with the story. Well, you know, um, it, you don't meet a Holocaust survivor um, lightly. And, um, and the first time I met Rena, um, we we really did bond on a very special level. Um, we really liked each other. And when she asked me to write her story, um, you know, I just, I didn't feel like I, I should say no. Um, and I wasn't, you know, it, it was, it was really an act of love. I mean, you know, her, her husband and she used to give me $50 a month to pay for gas. <laughs> and oh. And I was working a full-time job. I was didn't wasn't I didn't have my undergraduate degree yet, um, and I just really felt like with everything that Rena had been through, um, because she was on the first official Jewish transport to Auschwitz, um, and 
everything she had been through and the world had put her through, that it was the least I could do was to write her story, and maybe uh, we would give it to her kids. And, and about halfway through listening to her and starting to write, I went, this is a book. This is, a seri- this is like a serious story. And, um, and so I actually went back to college. I had dropped out of college. I went back to college. I went as a continuing ed student. I got some funding because I was, uh, you know, in my 30s and uh, early 30s, and, and uh, they gave me some support there. And I spoke to the dean of the college. I was at Salem College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I spoke to the dean, and she said, uh, she said, well, we could do an independent study, and I will work with you on the book. And I had never written a book before. Well, I had written – I had actually written a book before, but it hadn't gotten published. And um, And she was just amazing. She sort of – I want to say handheld, you know, a book is like a marathon and, um, (laughs) and you don't run a marathon without training and you really have to work your way up to, you know, that, that 22 miles. And, and the important thing about having uh, somebody on my side, a sort of coach was that if nothing else, I had somebody just encouraging me along the way and and saying, you know, this is this is good, and you need to hear that, you know, um, you need to hear if it's not good as well. But um, I really I had a, a tremendous amount of support from my history teachers and um, and my uh, the deans and uh, and that book came out. Uh, just the same year I received my undergraduate degree and it was translated in a bunch of languages and I did a book tour to England and it was really exciting. And I thought that was it. I wasn't going to write about the Holocaust ever again because it's so hard. <laughs> and now I'm yes, back at it. Yes. You're back <laughs> at it. Right. I know it is hard because when you get into the reality of the situation, it's it's hard uh, it touches mm-hmm. your heart in so many ways. It's really an emotional situation it's hard to believe that these things really happened, but we've got to document them. So I really honor you for the work and the heart and the emotion you're putting into this work. So Thank it's you. hard, I'm sure, to stay with it every day when you know that um, people, I don't know, it was the climate. I don't understand how people treated people so poorly. But let's get into yeah. more information about the first 99 999 women sent to Auschwitz, and um, how? Uh, where did the idea of making the film come into this? <clears throat> the film, the original idea was that um, it would be easier to make a documentary um, than write a book. Hmm. So I was really trying to uh, not write a book again, and because uh, I know how hard it is, and. So I I had this you know brilliant idea I the first transport I live in England part of the part of the year because my husband is British and his best friend is a producer has worked for the BBC he's been a film director he's been a cameraman and and you know and he's a freelancer now um, the beautiful thing about being in England is it's very very easy um, there's a lot of beautiful things with great tea for one but. The other thing is that you can fly very easily onto the continent. And um, and the first transport, the anniversary of the first transport is in March. And um, and so I learned that there was a survivor who was in her 90s, and she was going to be at the anniversary commemorative ceremonies. 
And I said to Steve, who lives in the village uh, where we live in England, I said, uh, what do you think? And I called this woman. Her name is Edith Grossman. She lives in Canada. I called her up. Uh, we did FaceTime. And she's an amazing, spirited, you know, woman who you you wouldn't think she's in her 90s. And she she was just like, you know, I said, I'd, lo- I'd love to interview you for a documentary. And she said, yes. So we jumped on a plane and we flew to Slovakia and we filmed her. And, um, and then, and then we've done a lot of other B roll um, and other survivors have have come out of the woodwork. So I've done, um, because filming is, can be expensive. I've done distance interviews on Skype with a survivor in Israel. I'm about to do with an Australian woman who I just learned um, she's 96. She's really great. And there's another woman who just found me in New York. So um, as of last week, there were six survivors, but we had somebody die over the weekend. So these women are all in their 90s. And it's and when I learn that somebody is still alive, um, I, I do everything I can to get there and get the interview um, so that we have this recorded. And Because uh, many of them did not u- go to the USC Shoah Foundation and, and give their testimonies. Oh, how important this is then. That, uh, yes, that's yeah. really great. That's really great you're doing this. Well, uh, so so you got the uh, the interview with her, and then you come home, and you've got a few minutes of footage. And, I mean, that's just a tiny, tiny beginning of a long, hard road to make a documentary. So what kept you going? What was the next thing you did? Well, you know, we we kept filming. We were actually traveling with some children of survivors, and and part of the story um, is is about these um, these the families trying to find information uh, because their mothers didn't really talk much about it, and and we go back into uh, their villages and homes. That's part of the story, and then the first is really the first the thrust of the of the story of, of the documentary and the movie is, is the, um, it's the innocence and the betrayal by the government because the Slovak government um, told these girls, <clears throat> excuse me, needed to be registered for work and they were going to go away for three months and they were going to work in a, in a uh, factory, like a shoe factory. And so these girls voluntarily went and signed up to go to work. And to help the government, that was to help. They needed. They said it was they supposed help. to help the war effort. And and uh-huh. a lot of them. I mean, one of the most moving moments. Um, we're starting the rough cut of the film, and one of the most moving moments is listening to a survivor say that they were. You know, they were all teenagers. Most of these girls are teenagers. They're they're excited about being adults, and they get on this train. And they sing the Slovak national anthem because they're excited to go to work. Mm-hmm. And they end up in Auschwitz. So, you know, what we're really working on here is the um, that dichotomy of innocence and evil yes. and how to portray that. So they get there and they are they're shuffled into the barracks, the barracks or 
What kind yeah. of housing? Tell us about it. Yeah. So, um, well, Auschwitz originally was a um, was an army barrack for the Polish army, and when the girls arrived, there's there's been men there, POWs, uh, Polish and Russian POWs, and, and political uh, prisoners who have fought the Third Reich. Um, you know, so anybody who's a communist would uh, would be arrested, and it's all men. And so it is. It is a. It's become a prison camp, but it was an army barracks, and they are brick blocks. They're two story in Auschwitz one, um, and and the girls arrive. There's a wall that's been built, um, and there's ten blocks that are put aside for these young women, and um, and so that's where they're held, and they're held there until August 1942, when they're moved to a much larger camp that has been built. And that's called Birkenau, and and that's a really horrible, horrible place. And it's like the size of 40 football fields. I've done so much research, and I've read about, you know, all of this so much. But I tell you, the first time that you arrive at Birkenau, it is jaw-dropping. It is so enormous. And and you cannot, you cannot, I don't think anybody can understand it till they actually stand foot there and realize how big it is. I mean, it takes about 20 minutes to walk from one end of the camp to the other. And um, it's just huge. And of course, you know, the girls that I write about, they had, you know, they had to walk back and forth between camps and, and um, you know, it's an extraordinary amount of work. It was filled with mud back then. Um, it's It was really um, very unsanitary. There, there was malaria. There was typhus. There was meningitis. Um, on top of starvation, it was you know surviving Auschwitz and Birkenau is is uh, a true feat of um, and of human spirit, but also physical um, strength. Uh, you know, you, you just uh, you have to have a certain kind of physique to be able to survive that. The many diseases that were the um, were all over the camp. Even SS died from diseases. Mm-hmm. Well, and they, they what I've read about uh, the Germans was that they used they saved the food for themselves. They didn't give oh, it to yeah. the prisoners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, there was a farm camp that's called Harmens. And that was the camp where they raised food, but they it wasn't raising food for the prisoners. It was raising food for the SS. Um, and there was rabbits and pheasants. And, um, I, um, you know, the survivor that I just discovered who lives in Australia, she actually worked in, in that camp, which will be very interesting because there's um, n- not a huge amount. There were not a lot of Jews in that camp. It was mostly Gentile prisoners that worked there because it was a more plush job. And um, so it'll be very interesting to get her story and that and that information from her. Well, when they when the girls got there, they put them to work doing what? What kind of work? Oh my gosh! Well, that's you know, it's just ridiculous. So uh, as I say in the book, and and will say in the documentary when I write the, the narration, um, you know, they you don't use teenage girls to demolition buildings but that was the first job they had to do and they literally um, had this very strange contraption with poles on it that they had to hold on and push buildings over Um, one of the jobs was to stand on the rooftop and throw shingles down and then other girls had to grab the bricks and the shingles 
and um, you didn't want to be on the ground because um, because the brick or the shingle could hit you, and if you weren't fast enough on the roof, uh, the SS would make you go to the ground. Um, so that was one of the jobs they had to do. Um, the other, um, you know, there were a number of jobs, but um, one of one of the worst was um, fertilizing the fields, and they um, they had to carry um, manure, cow manure, uh, with bare hands. Oh. Everything was designed to uh, dehumanize and dewomanize, and and so. You know, I, I said to Edith, she was telling me that one of her jobs, she had to fertilize the fields, but then she got moved on to, it snowed, and it, there was a big snowstorm in April in 1942, and she said that um, she and her sister had to clear the roads. And I said, you know, like, you mean like shoveling? And she said, sort of, I said, well, you, she said, we didn't use shovels. I said, did you use brooms? She said, no, we had to use our hands. Oh, my gosh. And and I was like, what? She goes, well, if we found a piece of newspaper, we could put the snow in the newspaper, but that didn't last long. So we had to use our hands to clear the roads. I mean, it's so cruel. And, and you know, she said that, you know, they came back that first day. She, they were so frozen that she crawled into bed. They actually had beds at that point in Auschwitz. One, and, and she, you know, and her sister made her get up to stand in line to get, you know, a piece of bread and and the the one of the documents that I have found in the in the archives I had a huge amount of support and help from archivists and historians in Slovakia there's actually a um, document about the amount of food that you feed um, they're supposed to feed these girls it's about a tin of cat food a small tin of cat food I mean <laughs> I give Goodness. my cat uh, like about let me see one can I will divide up in four ways right so four mm-hmm. cats could get one cat can of cat food in my house and my cats are fat <laughs> right? Right. so yeah oh one gosh. tin of cat food oh unbelievable unbelievable yes so and, it was and you really survival. have to you know one of the children of survive uh, children uh, one of the um, survivors children daughter sorry. Um, I asked her how she thought her mother survived, and she didn't didn't pause. She said, "They're short." <laughs> and I went, "Really?" Because her mother survived with two of her cousins, and I and she said, "Yeah, they're really short. They're like four eleven." And and we both started laughing, and and then we went. I went, you know, this makes a lot of sense because you don't need as much food. Yes. You're not a thing. And you're below the SS eye line. So, you know, the, the thing about Auschwitz is they had selections. So um, at some po- at, in August 1942, they started, um, they started getting too many people in camp. So in order to – they wanted healthy people, and they got rid of the sick ones. And, and sometimes they didn't care if you were sick or not. They just, you know, there was a quota. So if you, if you, if you walked by at the wrong moment, you could end up in the gas chamber. And – and, you know, but the other thing is that, you know, the SS are looking at you, and the taller you were, the, the more likely you were to be a target, I think. And, and so it was, I thought it was very interesting when she said that her aunts and her mom were really short. And, um, and Edith is, um, you know, she's maybe five, she's not terribly, she's not 4'11", she's five, maybe 5'2", but very slight and, mm-hmm. um, and non-threatening, you know. 
Um, <laughs> so it, it's very, it, there is this sort of thing, uh, one of the girls that does not survive um, and is selected to die would have been Edith's um, sister-in-law later in life because Edith um, marries into a, into a cousin in the family. And, and, and Adela Gross is quite beautiful. She has beautiful red hair. Now, everybody's had their heads shaved. You know, it's the first thing they do, dewomanizing. They put these girls into Russian men's uniforms that are so huge that they can't fit in them, and they shave their heads. And and so they don't look like women anymore. And but for some reason Adela, um, in at some point in the August or the fall of 1942, I don't know when, is selected to die, and she's healthy. And so one of the you know sometimes the reasons they selected people is because they were too pretty. Oh my uh, gosh! Real, it was a real crapshoot. You just didn't know, um, and it just you know. Uh, you had no power over your, you know, if you would be selected or not. You really, it, it's a very, um, and that's I, that's one of the reasons I refer to it as a Me Too story. It's not because they were sexually abused. It was because they were powerless, and the and the SS men and women wielded their power in such a way to um, to to yeah to dehumanize. I, I mean, that's the word that I keep coming back to, and mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's why it is a historic Me Too because that the whole movement today is is about women being able to stand up and have a voice and say, you know, you can't treat me that way, and you know, these young women didn't have that that power, that choice. Um, so one of the things I really want to look at, one of the things I do look at in the book, and and I'll. I'll go back and talk about, you mentioned book and film. Um, so in the midst of doing this documentary and and struggling to fundraise, because I've never done fundraising, and I've never written a log line, and, I've you know, there, there's a lot of hoops to jump through in terms of raising money. And, and, and meanwhile, I was getting more and more information, and I was doing all of this research, and my husband looked at me and he said, you've got to write a book. <laughs> and and I went ah oh. and um and and uh, and then he just looked at you know he said you know you you have to own this material because yeah. it's I've already been I already know it all from from the first book from Rena's story so um so I did I did a book proposal I sent it off the 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 publisher you know went the, it's different right movies and books are different so um. And the, I had a, got a publisher, and they gave me an advance, and that advance allowed me to finish my research and to write the book. And and during that time, every once in a while, <laughs> there would be a grant that I would think I have enough time that I could put it together and apply. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was, you know, I didn't do, I did almost no fundraising for a year on the documentary because the book was it ate up all of my time, all of my energy and um and I needed to really focus on it. And so it wasn't until the I finished the copy, you know, it wasn't until I got through the last bits of editorial processing um that I've been able to go back out and start looking for 
the funding so we can start doing our rough cut and, and start editing again. But the interesting thing is that um, people would say to me when I started this, well, what's the story? And I would be like, you know, like I wasn't really sure how to tell you in terms of film. But uh-huh. now I've written this book. It's like 400 pages. So we really have to cut the movie. But, um, but I know exactly what the story is. I know everything. And, and so it's, I don't know that I recommend people write a book <laughs> before they do a movie. Uh, but it, it's, you know, I certainly know what the story is now. And I just have to really pull material out. And we've got the narration. And I know where the quotes are. And, um, and uh, so I think probably the biggest challenge in terms of movie making is um, certainly what, um, you know, PBS will say is, you know, we're not interested in a bunch of talking heads and, and we have some really powerful testimony, but how do we show it, um, you know, in the, how do we show it visually with using that, their voiceover? So it's not just um, somebody speaking to the camera all the time and, 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 and that means archival research, and that means finding footage. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of footage in Auschwitz, um, or fortunately. I mean, there, I have some amazing archival photographs that we can, um, as my director says, Ken's bur- Ken burns the shit out of. <laughs> but um, <Right>. but <laughs> there's, no, there's no filmography of Auschwitz. And so um, it, it is probably our biggest challenge right now and um and one of the conversations we have a lot although i did just find some amazing uh footage in, from slovakia in 1932 which will help us tell the story of pre-war slovakia going into this um into the sort of the betrayal and and um of of the government of its people well- Right. This is what's so fascinating to me is, uh, uh, I mean, Germany just walked in and took over Poland. So uh, I would think that they, I mean, they would be against Germany, but obviously they became totally uh, willful in all they did. Yeah. So Poland, um, Poland was, was taken over. Slovakia was annexed because the Slovak government was um, Slovakia separated with Czech, the, and which we now refer to as the Czech Republic. But um, so it had been Czechoslovakia after World War One, and then they separated, and the Slovaks, um, a, a fascist government, took over Slovakia, and they annexed with Germany, or they, you know, they wanted mm. to work with Germany, um, and the Czechs did not. So the Czechs were part of appeasement, and um, and that happened with Chamberlain and 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 Slovakia ended up, you know, working with the Third Reich, and and in many ways they were, um, you know, the 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 um, the edicts against the Jews in Slovakia were yes. in many ways worse than what um, the Germans had against Jews. Uh, they, it was, there was a, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a joke, but <laughs> one of my uh, witnesses, because I use witness testimony as well, is that his mother used to say the only thing that, that Jews had permission to do was commit suicide. That was the only oh thing the goodness. Slovak government would allow them to do. And uh, they couldn't even own a cat. They couldn't own a pet. 
Oh my heavens! Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is a real story of um, xenophobia and racism and prejudice and and uh, and yet again um, and you know it was really interesting the conversations I was having in Spain last week. Um, the conversations were really targeted about women's rights, and I really loved that because. To me, that is a really big part of the story. Is any in any war, young women are the first targets, and you know. And then the other question is, I mean, this is seventy-five. This happened seventy-five years ago. Why aren't these girls? Why isn't it well known that the first transport was all young women? Yes. Why? You know, I literally stand in front of an audience every single time I say, how many of you knew that the first official Jewish transport to Auschwitz was all young women? You know, the only people that raise their hands will be people that have read Rena's Promise or know me. Nobody else. I've never seen more than one or two hands come up. I've gone to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., said that to a crowd of people, right, a crowd of Mm -hmm. students. Nobody raises their hand. Nobody knows. Why doesn't anybody know? And I believe that's because of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, How history old? is written by men. Yes, yes. Oh, and winners of so war right. are men. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so it's – and it, we just have – I think it's such an important conversation for us to have today because – you know the world is not at peace, and women are the ones who suffer the most. Exactly, exactly. Oh my goodness, this is so important here. Well, well all right. So, tell, go, stay with the book tour for a minute. Your um, your book is in how many languages right now? It's going to be in fourteen languages, right? And uh, yeah, so I think by next fall we will be through it will be coming out in israel uh china russia slovak poland czech um i think we just sold to brazil as well it's also coming out in portuguese but also brazilian portuguese and european portuguese it's doing it's doing both of those um i'm having trouble counting slovenian it's coming out in slovenia I think it's coming out in Romania as well. Um, it's not coming out in Germany. That's a, that's quite funny. <laughs> so I was saying, oh, we're waiting for ger- the German publishers to capitulate. <laughs> oh my goodness! So maybe they will. Just, we well, just promised it very well in Germany. So um, you know, I just I don't know why nine 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 hasn't sold yet, but it will, I'm sure. Well, the point is that um, will the uh, the video should be well received and in, in the same countries. This should well, be that's, very helpful to you. I think so, and and that's you know that certainly um, the the success of the book has certainly making it easier to get people to take fundraising seriously. I think you know it's a funny thing about film. <clears throat> nobody, <laughs> nobody, you know, nobody wants to give money for a film. And it's a bit like pulling teeth, and and everybody will say, oh, this sounds really important, but nobody, but who wants to go watch another Holocaust movie, right? So you sort of hear that a lot from people, or I hear that, 
and um, and I I get support from foundations, um, which has been really helpful. It you know it's it but it tends to come in dribs and drabs, and and you need people that are um, I need you know my crew. They all know that um, you know we we're not doing this for money. We're doing this for love, and we're doing this to um, for awareness and education. Um, I think. Um, that it, you know, it, it's I th- I think it's interesting. It's one of the you know Holocaust films do very well at the Oscars, but raising the money for them is not necessarily easy to do. And <laughs> that's true. Uh, um, and 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 I will say that um, you know most of the movies that you see, um, or, well, all of the Holocaust movies you see are men's stories. They're not women's stories. So. I'm really looking forward to um, to making this about women and making this the you know this story um, uh, this documentary uh, about these girls. Um, it I, I mean I think it's probably for distribution. We're hoping you know for um, PBS or some other um, uh, you know cable network or TV. I think that's probably where we're aiming for in terms of distribution. Um, and and then, you know, anything I have left over, I will share with the USC Shoah Foundation in terms of testimony or keep testimony on our website because I believe that education and, um, and access is really important. And uh, the more I... You know, the more I make sure that I speak about these girls, um, I know so many young women are moved by this story, and I have a lot of, I, you know, I do a lot of um, educational outreach, and I think it's just really, really important for young women um, to have role models like these girls. I mean, they weren't angels in Auschwitz, that's for sure. You know, some of them did some you know, unethical things to survive. That's what you do. I think it it provides for a very real conversation about um, we get to look at who we are, who would I be? Would I be somebody who helped a friend or would I be somebody who stole food from, from you know, somebody else? Um, and so I, I love having those kind of really honest conversations with young, young people uh, because I think, think that's how we learn um care we develop our character yes yes excellent well uh, i think that all the time you put into the book has benefited you in many ways not only do you really know the story so you're able to cut what you want quicker than a lot of filmmakers but you'll also have um the power of the book to to get the film seen in those countries and I would think that this would be another tour where you would be traveling with the film and touring and answering questions and creating dialogue I've certainly um, I'm showing the trailer in every country I go to um, and I do a presentation that um, you know I focus on a couple of the uh, women that are in the book and we have amazing photographs in the book I have 42 photographs of um, girls that didn't survive and did survive. And there's a photograph of, um, you can actually also see some of the photographs on the, on the website, um, 999themovie.com. 
the you know there's a photograph from 1940 matzah uh, Passover and it's a, a family making matzah um, and it's yeah. just incredible to see uh, you know the equipment that they used and and there's like 20 people in this amazing photograph and in that photograph only two people survive. Uh, this is these are the kind of numbers that's really hard for people to get their head around. You know that that uh, I the the woman who's uh, the survivor in New York who I just learned about her daughter ca- called me and said um, my mom's story is really interesting because uh, she's the only person who survived in the entire village. The oh entire village died, and you know these it's very hard to understand. Um, unless you have gone through uh, that kind of crisis, whether it is an environmental crisis like an earthquake that wipes out your family or genocide. Um, it's, it's, It's hard for people to really wrap their heads around that kind of devastation and death. And, um, uh, one of uh, Rena's niece, because um, my first book, Rena's Promise, uh, Rena's niece Sarah um, said says in 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 999. So at the very end of the book of 999, I have a section where survivors' children can speak and talk about what it means to have a mother or an aunt who survived. And Sarah Cohen says, you know, she didn't know what it was like to have aunts and uncles or grandparents. Um, until she married her husband and discovered oh, this goodness. really large family because, of course, she grew up, she had an aunt. That was it. That's all they had, mm-hmm. the two sisters. And so for families that had, you know, large, large families, many of these girls come home and there's nobody left. And then the double curse, because they were so young when they were in Auschwitz, is they have trouble bearing children. So a number of them have miscarriages, um, uh, edits or, or, or interruptions. That's what they called abortions back then. Um, you know, they they were too weak uh, um, to be able to bear a child, so they the doctors had to um, you know remove the baby in order to save the mother, mm-hmm. and and so you know they they maybe uh, you know Edith has one son. She had five siblings when she was growing up. I'm sorry, six, um, but she was she only had one son, and um, and she survived Auschwitz. Um, she had tuberculosis, so you know it, that's the other end of it. Is that you know just because you survive doesn't mean your life is hunky dory afterwards. Um, many of them had uh, kidney disease and other illnesses that um, lasted for for their lifetimes. So, again, they had to survive other things once they got out. So they really, truly have become Our survivors. survivors. Yeah. And, that, that, and, that's, and I think that's one of the things I say to people I talk to all the time, especially young people, is, you know, these women are such role models for us. Um, yes. That, you know, anytime you feel like you can't, you know, <laughs> your life is not working out, um, you know, just take a breath and go, well, listen, you know, if Edith can do it, I can do it. And... Um, and take strength from their story and, yes. and courage. Oh, I have to thank you so much for sharing all this information with us. 
And how wonderful that you documented these women and their historical contributions that would have gone unnoticed. And you brought this to light. Now, they have to recognize what part women played in that war, right? Yeah, I hope so. I I mean, I do. I, I... it's certainly in terms of survivors and in terms of male witnesses and, and Slovak survivors these young women are are honored and and highly regarded um Rudolf Verba who is a very famous um Auschwitz survivor because he escaped from Auschwitz he's one of the few people few people who did successfully escape from Auschwitz and he's written a he wrote a book, great book years ago. He was good friends with Edith and her husband in Prague, and um, and he writes about the the. He's one of the few people who's actually written mentioned these girls in his book. It's very hard to find other <clears throat> other testimony that that mentions these girls, and and Rudy does it quite a bit, and um, and I. Um, and I quote him because of that. And I, I wonder if part of that reason is just because he knew some of them, or because he knew Edith in Prague. Um, you know, I'm not really sure, um, but I, I did um, really. Uh, you know, it's not like they were invisible in camp. The men knew about it. Um, it's after the war uh, where they sort of disappear from history. Yes. And that's where they have to stay in history, and that's what you've done for them. Thank you for that. Yes, yeah, this that's, is really that's important. That's what we're about. <laughs> and, and, and Women's caring. History Month is around the corner, so this is a great yes. time to be talking to you. Yes, it's wonderful, and to be carrying this story all over Europe and back to the United States. Because well, thank you for helping us be more visible. The grant has been really helpful, and and it's helping us get into the rough cut and um and you know move forward so that we can you know it it just you gave me such a boost <laughs> oh thank you for that really I'm so appreciate happy to be part. it great well we hope that you'll come back on the show in another 8 months or so and tell us how it's working for you because this is such a powerful story it's wonderful thank that you. you're doing all this work Thank you. Yeah, I would love to. Love to. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, Claire, thank you very much for the show, and I appreciate you, Heather, so much. We both are. Thank you, Carol. You're doing a great service to all independent filmmakers. We just love your positive um, approach, and uh, you're one of those great role models that says never give up, and it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to never (laughs) give up. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, I know, but that's what we have to do. We that's are the what pathfinders. we have to do. Right. Keep going, absolutely. Keep going. Thank you so yeah. much, Heather. Best Thank of you, luck. Carol. Thank you, Claire. All right. Oh, you're welcome. Bye. Thank you. You're my hero. <laughs> All right. Yes. Take care, all, and be well. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, 
and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.